So welcome to this episode in our podcast series looking at the approach of global financial regulators to non-financial misconduct and whistleblowing. I'm Duncan Campbell, a managing associate at Linklater's financial regulation practice, uh, focusing on contentious regulatory matters. Hi, I'm Doug Davison, a partner in Linklater's dispute resolution practice in the U.S. with a focus on regulatory enforcement matters. Hi, I'm Soman Lee, an associate in Linklater's dispute resolution practice in the U.S., and I have experience on regulatory enforcement matters. We recently published a review of the role non-financial misconduct, or NFM, is playing in the assessment of the suitability of individuals to work in financial services and also of whistleblowing requirements. Our review is available on the Linklater's website, and a link comes with the link to this podcast. It addresses the position in 12 key financial centres around the world and should be of interest to people in senior management positions legal and compliance teams, and anyone with responsibility for whistleblowing programs. In this podcast episode, we'll look at some examples of the ways that US regulators have been addressing NFM and whistleblowing in financial services. First, we'll look at the way that FINRA addresses NFM. It's a good example at the federal level. Then we'll outline the relevance of federal employment law and regulators. We'll then move on to whistleblowing, initially the protections afforded by federal law, and then examining the position in the state of New York. Finally, we'll step through a worked example to see how it all fits together. This will be unlike some of the other episodes we're recording about different jurisdictions' approaches to these issues. This episode is going to be less by way of overview and more by way of a series of illustrative examples, and that's because the regulatory framework relevant to NFM is more complex across the U.S. than in many other jurisdictions. Doug, would you comment on that? Duncan, that's exactly right. There are different state jurisdictions and a variety of state and federal laws and regulations that apply to financial services firms. Some are tailored to the financial services industries and some apply generally to employers. As a result, there's no single regulatory body or framework that specifically oversees NFM or whistleblowing in financial services. The, the primary regulators of financial services firms typically would not assert jurisdiction over NFM or whistleblowing. But of course, there are exceptions. For example, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, typically would not assert jurisdiction over NFM. On the other hand, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, or FINRA, which is the self-regulatory body overseen by the SEC, may in fact assert jurisdiction over NFM. FINRA is the single largest independent government-authorized not-for-profit body regulating registered brokers and dealers. And it has interpreted one of its rules to cover certain NFM by those persons. All right, well, let's focus on NFM then for starters. And first, we'll consider the regulation of NFM in, in financial services specifically. FINRA is a good example. So how does that organization seek to address NFM by what way of its rules and it's also its formal enforcement action? A couple of ways, Duncan. Um, FINRA's rules mostly target financial conduct, but its rule 2010 is regarded as a catch-all provision requiring an associated member to observe high standards of commercial honor and just and equitable principles of trade. Rule 2010 doesn't expressly mention NFM. It does, however, cover an individual's ability to comply with regulatory requirements, fiduciary duties, and a wide variety of conduct that may affect investors 
or other market participants. Right. And many regulators struggle to define really the limits of non-financial misconduct that should or should not attract disciplinary action by a financial services regulator. It sounds like Rule 2010 is too high level to assist here, really. Um, Soman, you have a comment to make on that. So on its face, that might be right. But we can also look at how courts and enforcement actions have interpreted Rule 2010 to apply to activity that does not involve a security in various situations. And those include misappropriation of a political club's funds by its treasurer, intentional submission and lying about falsified expense reports, harassing, intimidating, and deceptive conduct, a fraudulent loan application using a customer's information, as well as blackmailing the SEC for coercive payments to avoid adverse publicity. In the SEC's words, such actions are highly troubling conduct that raises serious doubts about the fitness to work in the securities industry. That's because they betray a dishonest character that is wholly inconsistent with these high standards demanded for a securities professional. Okay, so that potentially indicates a direction that U.S. regulators might take in interpreting Rule 2010. And, and perhaps to take a real-world example now from the U.K. context, actually, the U.K. financial services regulator has in the past banned a senior manager in financial services uh, for £43,000 in train fare evasion. Uh, and that took place over several years of daily commuting. If this happened within a member of FINRA, how might uh, FINRA respond? Uh, can you comment on that? Yeah, Duncan, that's interesting. I mean, the conduct might not have been, quote, in the conduct of business, close quote. But Soman and I think that FINRA's view could be that Rule 2010 is really focused instead on what the activity says about an individual's character. So we think that FINRA could potentially discipline the individual. The misconduct reflects on their capacity in handling other people's money and, as Soman said before, raises serious doubts about their fitness to work in the securities industry. These are the very things FINRA would be worried about when it applies Rule 2010. Right. So still on non-financial misconduct then, but now looking at laws and authorities that aren't specific to financial services, what's a good example of that sort of thing? So a good example is the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, which is commonly called the EEOC. It enforces federal laws against employment discrimination and harassment, specifically the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits workplace sexual harassment. And most employers with at least 15 employees are covered by those laws. So the EEOC has jurisdiction over many in the financial services industry regarding non-financial misconduct. These firms have established detailed policies and procedures against such discrimination and harassment. These policies and procedures are to follow the EEOC's guidance, including criteria for sexual harassment when an employer may be liable and preventative steps for employers to take. And that's where I'll stop because the EEOC process and precedents are a bit too complex to go into detail here. Okay, well, that will give us more time actually to look at whistleblowing which I understand is an especially active regulatory area in the U.S., perhaps more so than in many of the other jurisdictions we've surveyed in our full publication. I think that's right, Duncan. The U.S. has seen an increased volume of whistleblower activity in the last year, uh, mostly for financial misconduct rather than NFM. For example, in Q4 of 2020, the SEC awarded $176 million in awards. $176 million, that's a lot. 
And in 2020, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, received over 1,000 whistleblower tips, which is about a 36% increase from 2018, which had then been its highest record. So lots of activity there. Uh, the legal framework on uh, whistleblowing, again, it's complex because you have federal and state regulations and authorities in the US. Some relate specifically to financial services, others relate to employers more broadly. So let's look at some, uh, some of these examples, Duncan. Sure, yeah, and let's dive in and perhaps we'll look at uh, some of the federal examples first, uh, first, followed by some state examples. Sure, so there are various US federal financial regulators that have whistleblower schemes. To be eligible to report under those schemes, the complaint generally must relate to financial matters. For example, the SEC's whistleblowing scheme requires the report to provide information about a violation of the securities laws. There's also the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, which applies to most private sector employers and protects employees from retaliation for raising workplace health and safety concerns. That law created the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, what we call OSHA. OSHA establishes and enforces standards prohibiting an employer from retaliating against employee for exercising their rights. OSHA has issued recommended practices for anti-retaliation programs, and these are very influential in the health and safety context, and actually beyond that. Well, it's worth perhaps diving into um, what those recommended practices require. Can we uh, have an outline of that? Sure, Duncan. So there are five key elements. First is the management leadership commitment and accountability. And this includes fostering an open culture, backing up words with action, and being accountable for the way they respond to reports. Second is a system for listening to and resolving employee safety and compliance concerns. And this goes beyond culture, as employers should establish reporting mechanisms and resolution procedures. Third, systems for receiving and responding to reports of retaliation. This should include independent reporting channels, the ability for an employee to escalate the matter, and define roles and responsibilities for managers at all levels. Fourth, is anti-retaliation training for employees and managers. Various matters should be covered, including whistleblower protection at law, and in company policies. Employees' rights and how to exercise them and managers' skills and behaviors to respond effectively. And lastly is program oversight. In essence, rigorous checks are necessary to ensure that anti-retaliation programs are working as expected and are improved as needed. That's really useful. And I imagine that when it comes to uh, regulation at the state level, New York might be a good example to take then given the amount of financial services provided there. Absolutely. Uh, here we'll start with the general laws first. So New York's labor law contains a whistleblower statute, which isn't specific to financial services. It prohibits private and public employers of any size from retaliating in any way against an employee because the employee makes or threatens a disclosure to a public body. The disclosure must be about an activity, policy, or practice of the employer. Importantly, though, the activity, policy, or practice must create a substantial and specific danger to the public health or safety. Right. So that sounds like an important uh, limitation there. Is there guidance specific to financial services then uh, in New York that goes beyond that context? Yes, there is, Duncan. The, the New York State Department of Financial Services, or DFS, 
regulates financial services and products subject to New York insurance, banking, and financial services laws. And the DFS has taken a keen interest in whistleblower protections. And it's backed this up with significant enforcement action. In 2018, for example, it fined Barclays $15 million for governance, controls, and corporate culture shortcomings after its CEO sought to identify potential whistleblowers. The UK's Financial Conduct Authority and Prudential Regulation Authority also took action. The DFS in 2019 issued guidance on whistleblowing programs to all the institutions it regulates. The guidance, as you may imagine, is far-reaching. It covers reports about a variety of matters, including illegality, fraud, unfair or unethical conduct, mismanagement, abuse of power, unsafe or dangerous activity, or, quote, other wrongful conduct, close quote, including conduct that may affect an institution's safety, soundness, or reputation. And to add to that, the DFS has made recommendations for what financial service firms whistleblowing programs should cover at a minimum. So, for example, these programs should be reporting channels that are independent, well-publicized, easy to access, and consistent, have strong protection for a whistleblower's anonymity, include procedures to identify and manage conflicts of interest, investigate allegations, and ensure appropriate follow-up on valid complaints, include adequate training on receiving complaints, deciding on a course of action, and competently managing investigations, referrals, and escalations, have concrete steps to protect whistleblowers from retaliation, treat whistleblowing matters confidentially, have appropriate oversight of the whistleblowing function at a high level, including senior management, auditors, and the board, and finally, promoting a top-down culture of support for the whistleblowing function. So the DFS regulates perhaps the most significant U.S. financial services jurisdiction. No doubt its guidance and enforcement approach then will influence regulators uh, across the U.S., uh, so that's a useful example to take. Let's wrap this up then by putting all this into practice and see how the various laws and regulators might respond to a hypothetical example. So let's say we've got two traders, A and B, at a FINRA regulated brokerage in New York. They go to a colleague's birthday celebration at a bar. Uh, They have a physical altercation and trader B is charged with assault. It emerges that trader A previously blew the whistle on trader B's bullying behavior by contacting the firm's hotline. Uh, And in response to that, compliance did speak to the trader's managing director. The managing director said that they would deal with the issue and nothing further was done. So how might the various laws and regulators respond to this set of circumstances? No, it's interesting, Duncan. So Soman and I gave this some thought. We think FINRA could discipline Trader B for the bullying and assault. Uh, The whistleblowing is less straightforward. Unless Trader A complained to the federal OSHA, then the law, OSH Act, wouldn't apply. New York State's labor law doesn't apply because Trader A's complaint was not about any illegal conduct by the employer. And the managing director didn't retaliate against Trader A. But the New York DFS guidance does apply. DFS may take action against the managing director and the firm because they failed to protect Trader A's anonymity, failed to follow procedures to investigate bullying allegations, and failed to follow up appropriately. 
that's a really instructive worked example. Thank you both. And, and that's all we have time for, unfortunately. I'd like to thank my guests on this episode, Doug and Soman, for their insights uh, into the ways that US regulators are grappling with these issues. Really appreciate it. And if you're interested in reading more, then on linklaters.com, you can find our full publication on the approach to non-financial misconduct and whistleblowing in 12 key financial centers including the US and with some worked examples. And remember to share and subscribe to this podcast feed for more insights from us too. Thank you for listening and goodbye.